Welcome to another episode of Monday, Monday Afternoon, afternoon Theologian. It's great to be with you again. It is indeed. Here we are with episode 11. Hard to believe it's been that many, but you know, we've been at this a while. Today, we're taking a second part approach to invalid worldviews. We're going to highlight a few and camp out in one. Have you ever received invalid directions when you have been lost trying to get somewhere? I have, but most of them usually have come from me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> when I thought I knew where I was going, and I really didn't. That's happened to me too. And my wife, my lovely wife, who is so patient, would say, mm -hmm. Do you know where you're going? <laughs> and I would say, yes, I just don't know how to get there. <laughs> but one time we got some very invalid directions. At least I think they were invalid. I couldn't really understand because we were in Scotland. This was the first time our whole family went over there because I was on sabbatical. And we got hopelessly lost north of Glasgow after we'd gotten off the plane and into our people mover, a.k.a. van. And we pulled off to the side of the road and we were looking at a paper map because that was pre-Siri. Somebody came up and said, Oh, I, are you looking for the shit you bought the bar to get you bought? And I said, Yeah. And he says, Well, you just pop around it and go second and go to the right, and then we get that tree, and then you hang up and go over there. And he told us this stuff, and Joy was nodding her head, and I was trying to write stuff down. And she said, Did you get that? I said, I hope so. <laughs> but we didn't get it good enough because we found that same little village about three times after going through a series of about four roundabouts. And I thought, I don't think we're supposed to be seeing the same building again. So finally, we were so frustrated at the side of the road again. And this time, a lorry driver, lorry is a truck, delivery truck, climbed down out of his very tall cab, walked over to us and said, oh, you look like you might be lost. Thank you, friend. We are so lost. He says, what are you trying to get to ultimately? And I thought about saying, well, heaven ultimately, but you know, as for, as for here, we're trying to get to pit lockery for tonight. And then we're going to, I didn't say it like that. It's just coming out that way. But I said, pit lockery. He goes, oh, oh, ah, that's easy. That's no problem at all. I'm headed that way. Anyway, I'm going to the A9. If you'll just follow me, stay on my bumper. I'll get you to the carriageway which is like a freeway. I said, oh, that'd be great. <laughs> so sure enough, we just followed him onto the A9. The rest is history. And that for me became an analogy for a valid set of directions because there are a lot of people who would like to try to give us instructions for life, but they just make us feel more lost. But in this case, it was a guy kind of like God. I, I picture that this lorry driver was like God. Because God is way up high. He climbs down to our level, which God did through Christ. And he speaks our language so that we can understand it. Instead of some foreign language, he's not hiding up there behind clouds somewhere. And beyond that, he doesn't just give us hard to follow instructions. He says, just follow me. You know, because Christ says, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I am the life. Just follow me. And if we're doing that, then he becomes the map. And then we feel a whole lot less lost. Because as long as we're following him, we know we're going to get to our final destination. That's my analogy. Yeah, I like it. 
And as we've talked about before, well, let's do a quick little recap of what we did two times ago mm -hmm. in uh, episode nine. You know, we looked at how we can look at our worldviews both empirically and via experience to mm -hmm. test them out to see if they are in fact valid. And we talked through a few of them that were not valid. The first one being skepticism. And their basic premise is that no proposition is true and therefore no one can know anything. And the first question that comes to our minds when somebody says no proposition is true is including that one? Yeah, at which point we find that it is logically absurd and therefore cannot be valid, as is the opposite of skepticism, which is epistemological relativism, which says that all propositions are true. So if they can't all be false, it's pretty obvious that they can't all be true. And there's no way to validate that because if even one is untrue, then everything falls apart like a house of cards. And that one just seems absurd, even in hearing the very simplicity of that statement. All propositions must be true. No. And then the third one that we, we camped out in was evidentialism. And we took the premise that was put forth by W.K. Clifford, who says that it is immoral or irrational to believe in anything without sufficient proof. Mm -hmm. And again, there's no way to validate the premise using the premise as the foundation for the validation. It just doesn't, it just doesn't work. Yeah. So today we're going to look at a series of additional invalid worldviews. And the first one is scientific positivism. Well, that sounds really positive. It, it does. And science is good, but it is also based in evidentialism. And it says that it's irrational to believe anything that cannot be verified by the scientific method. So we would have to take a look at the scientific method and how that works out and whether or not you can add validity based on the replication of certain scientific premises, evidence that comes from those scientific experiments. Right, and you have to be able to replicate your results if you're gonna find something that does work. So you take it all the way back, in my mind at least, and instantly I go back to creation itself because we would think, well, has anybody observed that? Because scientific method includes that it has to be observable and then you get to replicate the results. Well, nobody was there except for God at the very beginning. So we just don't know that we can use the scientific method to validate that specific event in history. Yeah. And on the flip side of that, nobody was there for the Big Bang either. Right. And so we have two different counter arguments based on things that nobody can validate mm -hmm. uh, experientially. Mm -hmm. So scientific positivism, immediately we start to see some cracks Right. And if we look at the, the basic premise of it, we can say that positivism is the claim that the only valid source of knowledge is sensory experience, which is reinforced by logic and mathematics. And those three things together provide the empirical evidence for science. So we've got sensory experience, logic, math, that becomes our science. And some would say that this is the naturalizing or putting into the natural world epistemology. That has some, some basic foundational issues because not everything that is epistemological can be validated by science. 
seems a bit arbitrary for them to say it's only going to be within these three portions of this box that we can use for validation in this particular worldview. And they eliminate right. a lot of other things that we could and should use to help validate. Yeah, we looked at how the naturalism has the box and it's a closed box. There's no room for anything in nature that is outside of the box. Therefore, <laughs> uh, God would have to be within the box and that limits God to things that are within the natural world and that doesn't necessarily follow with what we see in the scriptures. So there's a lot more that has to do with the positivism and scientific positivism. Uh, I pulled that definition out of a website that is called metaphysicist.com. We're going to put a link to that and another link to something we talk about later in the description for our fellow theologians who really want to look into it a, a bit more specifically and more in depth. There's, a, there's an issue with everything being related to science, and that is, can the scientific method prove the presupposition of the scientific positivist? Yeah. What scientific experiment can prove this statement? Well, none exists. Yeah. So if you're saying it has to be verified by this, but this can't verify it, it seems like we have a logical absurdity, and therefore we invalidate it as the only possibility for a worldview that stands up to all of the parameters that we've looked at before. Exactly. And then this next word is one that I was not terribly familiar with before we started getting into some of the things we've been talking about. And that's a word that sounds very similar to another word. What is this other word that we're going to look at next? We're going to look at missology. And when I typed it in to, to get more information on it, I added a letter and I got missiology. And that is the study of missions. And that's a whole nother arena because missology is defined as the hatred of reasoning or the distrust of logical debate, argumentation, or the Socratic method. And right off the top, this has some real issues because yeah. if we can't reason and use logic, then how can we come up with something that even pretends to be a, a tenable worldview? Sounds to me like this could really factor into if it feels good, do it. Yeah, and the etymology of all of that really does go back to uh, critics of Socrates, and some of Plato's works will go in and talk about this and how there are some uh, fallacies in that. So, I mean, this, this is something that dates way back in almost prehistory for us. We really have to reject this as a valid worldview because there's no reason, there's no logic, and therefore you can never have a real answer. And why would you base your entire worldview on something that has no basis in, um, in, in reality? Yeah, it seems like everything to that kind of person would be irrational. Yeah, exactly. And what kind of a world would we have if everything was irrational? Well, one pretty similar to the, what we're seeing in the world today, but that's... <laughs> That's because so many people are rejecting things like logic and looking at real evidence for a real solid worldview, which we believe, of course, is Christianity because that passes all of the tests. And so this one really seems to get way off in the deep weeds with irrationality. Yeah, I was reminded of, of all things, a bit out of a comedy special by Mike Birbiglia when he was talking about 
meeting his his wife walking through the the dating stages the courting stages before they got married and they were having a uh, a discussion and it turned into an argument and nothing she was saying to him sounded logical or reasonable in any way and she just flat out said well i just won that argument and he said how can you even say that and she said because that's how i feel <laughs> to me that's kind of a a practical look at mythology yeah and that empiricism if you follow that to its ultimate outcome that's going to be not real positive <laughs> but not real positive no so the next one we're going to look at some people would say is this really a worldview and that's radical feminism and if we just look at the headlines today there's a lot of that going on and a lot of people interpret reality through the lens of radical feminism now that is different than the concept of equitable feminism which means women should be treated equally as men it's perfectly okay it's perfectly valid to expect that all of the the things that are given to one group say the male half of the population should also be given to the female population if we're looking at an equitable situation then then feminism is perfectly fine the problem is when it starts to radicalize mm -hmm. it gets to the point that from the feminist point of view men are worthless oh boy all you have to do is look at a whole bunch of tv shows and you see this being fleshed out through the characters that are portrayed because that happens a lot yeah i i saw a brief little thing it was just a, a woman going crazy because her partner had said if you'd like i'll open that jar for you and, <laughs> and she just blew up at him because oh because i'm a, a weak female because i don't have the same strength as you that i can't do it and on and on and on and on and it went on for several minutes and finally she handed him the jar <laughs> yes and it wasn't because he felt like he was better it was just he knew he had more strength in his hands yeah and that's where some of this logic breaks down too because we're not going to be logical if we can't admit there are certain things that certain people might be able to do differently because of their biological makeup than other people who are built differently and that's logic but radical feminism can start to throw out that logic and throw it way out until it becomes extremely irrational and that's what some of that radical comes in and anything anytime you put anything radical in there you can almost assure that it's going to take something that could be balanced and good and even scripturally sound and take it to an extreme which is not what is being taught in scripture right in fact some would say that to the radical feminist logic is a tool that men use to keep women downtrodden mm -hmm. you know so irrational is, is to be in tune well say to, to be irrational is to be in tune with your true self and therefore the logical conclusion is not that they want to use logic because that's keeping them downtrodden um, you can never prove and you never have to prove that what you say is true you could just be like that com comedian's wife and just say, that's the way I feel. Exactly. So then the Christian can say, there's no logic here. So you can't prove that my beliefs as a Christian are false. Mm -hmm. And then the next question is, so why aren't you a Christian? What would you have against it? It can't be false. So therefore, <laughs> you 
can accept it without violating your worldview. It's really interesting to chase these rabbits down their trails to where they would end up if you really follow them based on their premise. And that's what we get. And so these things really take us into some irrational, illogical, doesn't even make sense. And yet they'll try to camp out on that. And they try to push back against Christianity based on that. And it doesn't hold water. So the next one we'll take a quick look at is deconstructionism. Mm -hmm. And here the premise is that it is impossible to ever know the meaning of any written text. Oh, and the big thing that comes to my mind about that would be including the texts related to deconstructionism? I have to answer that question. And based on your premise, you would have to say, yeah, I can't trust those either. Therefore, my worldview falls apart. Right. We're, we're just going to click that one little domino and the entire gym floor is going to yes. uh, turn into domino chaos. Yeah, because all meaning would be subjective and it means to you whatever you want it to mean. So we can't say that deconstructionism is true because that's not true either. It's impossible to know the meaning even of that. So it really does fall like a stack of dominoes. Yeah, it's just self-defeating nonsense. Yeah. There's a, an author, D.A. Carson, he wrote a book called The Gagging of God. And in that, he takes a look at how this works out. And he says that meaning is only a communal bias. So therefore, it's all relative and it's all subjective. You can't have any transcendent truths, even of those things as something as structured as mathematics. <laughs> and if truth just consists of fallible and faulty opinions held by a finite number of knowers who themselves are only looking at things in a certain way because they belong to a certain section of society, then truth becomes very limited and is not consistent across society because small subsets of that society would have their own truth. I like Carson, by the way. I've listened to a lot of his teachings, and he's super solid. And for him to say that about communal bias is the source of meaning, that reminded me of an article that I read, not by Carson, but by somebody who agrees that this is a fallacy, this is wrong. And they were saying they were trying to write a spoof, almost like you would see in a satire like Babylon B, totally satirical. It's for humor purposes only. And he was writing an article about that to try to prove that gravity is a social construct. <laughs> and he got taken to task by all kinds of people because people were starting to buy into that. And he says, hey, this is a joke, folks. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and that's the problem. I mean, so many of these worldviews are so out there that they start to, to take the satire and think that it's a, a valid look at reality. Yeah, which, as we can see, would really trivialize anything that's really important, including faith. It would just trivialize that and make it almost a moot issue to talk about it. Yeah, and they do that without providing any proof. Right. Because within their structure that follows their presupposition to whatever conclusion that they want it to, mm -hmm. there's, there's no validity in there. So therefore, they can easily say, well, faith doesn't mean anything. In this case, faith is a social construct. Faith is a communal bias. Faith is only valid within this little limited segment of society that happens to believe in faith. 
and you would say, do you have faith in that statement? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the last one we're going to look at today is a big one. And so much of what we see happening in the world today, both societally and culturally, goes back to a time not so many years ago, 60, 70 years ago. Postmodernism developed somewhere about the 1960s. The roots are, are perhaps in the 50s and was really more developed in the 60s. Modernism was a segment of belief that was really held for almost 300 years from the 1650s to the 1950s. Pre-modernism we define as anything before that. Mm -hmm. And we see you know, all of human history up to about 1650 is much longer than the 300 years that we see where modernism was in place and then postmodernism now has been in place 60, 70 years or so. So we see that there's a, a lot of history that precedes the ideas that come from postmodernism. Mm -hmm. So let's take a look at, at pre-modernism that was for so long before 1650. And there we see that God or the supernatural realm is what furnishes the basis for morality human dignity, truth, and reason. So they would use the scriptures, they would use the writings of the philosophers, and that would be what they used to base their morality, dignity, truth, and reason. So there's a long history of that. Then we move into the, the more Renaissance era, the Age of Enlightenment, all of these things, and that's where we see... I'm putting enlightenment in air quotes. Yes, of course. Morality, dignity, truth, reason, there rest upon foundations that were not God. You know, it was the science or reason or even, you know, the race of the person was what developed into those, you know, higher thought processes, taking God out of the picture, um, allowing for God, though, in, in religion, whether it be the, the Catholic Church or uh, any of the English or other European churches. Uh, we get into uh, the Reformation, but this was not what the modernists would say really establishes the foundation for, you know, mm -hmm. dignity, truth, and reason, or morality, all of those four uh, were based on something other than scripture, other than the concept of God, other, whether that be the Catholic God or the Protestant God. And we see a lot of things start to have a downturn, although there were some really good things that came during that period. I mean, we see the structure of the American government and how different that was and how it allowed people freedoms that weren't given prior to that, mm -hmm. simply because the men who wrote that had their morality still based back in a God-centered state. Yeah. But it was opposition to that. And that's where we see the French Revolution was very different than the American Revolution. Yep. And the results of that were very different than from the American Revolution. And the stage was set for a very different path for what happened in Europe based on the French Revolution rather than the American Revolution. And it's interesting to note, because if we look back in history and see what all these different civilizations and countries looked like, when we're talking about fleshing these things out to see if we can empirically test a worldview, you look in history at where these countries go, and when suddenly, after 17 centuries of believing that morality is based on God's character, and suddenly we get super smart, and we think, oh, we're smarter than that. We're figuring things out. We're enlightened now. 
And a lot of that enlightenment creeps in when men want to do things that men want to do, and they don't want those social taboos that were based on God's morality. And so they start making up their own stuff, which is where a lot of this kind of modernism started to creep in. And those started the slippery slope in different nations. And you watch to see where they have headed. And it has not been pleasant. It has not been a good thing for their societies. So we suddenly think we're smarter than God. And that's where it takes us. And even though in the early period of the modernism, we had some good things develop, the closer we get to postmodernism, we start to see some other thought processes work into it, whether it's Marx or Hume or Freud or Stalin or Lenin or all of these guys. We see the foundation being set for the structuralization of pre-modernism that really happened post-World War II uh, into the 50s and then it became more systematic into the 60s. And if we can say that postmodernism believes that all of the meta-narratives, those are the thought systems, the grand stories, those are all suspect. And it doesn't matter whether they're religious or they're not. There is no universal foundation for truth, morality, or human dignity. And, and in some senses, they really start to focus on reason as the prime factor and the morality and dignity and truth don't really even matter at that point. And we see how 60 years later that a lot of the things that we're seeing happening today are really the result of the foundation of the postmodernists that were happening in the 60s. And what are some of the things that happened in the 60s that led to that? Well, God was taken out of the schools. Morality turned into whatever the heck you wanted. And that, as we saw in, say, 67, 68 into the early 70s, was uh, free love which means sex was whatever you wanted it to be. And we see that as we move into the 70s, that became very prevalent, especially because of the development of the uh, anti-pregnancy pill. And things have called, sort of fallen apart since then. All based on feelings and redefining your terms for what you think is moral based on feeling or based on a lack of that plumb line character quality of God, which was all the way back there in pre-modernism. So let's take a look at just a, a few of these characteristics that help define the, the postmodernists. Mm -hmm. We'll kind of talk a little bit about them as we go. And again, these were taken from, let me get to the right place here. You know, it was a website called namb.net. Mm -hmm. Again, we'll put that link in there. That's a lot of good information on the the various segments of time as they've been outlined here. But they talk a look at the characteristics of postmodernism. And the first one is anti-dualistic, which means not uh, black or white. Right. The postmodernist asserts that Western philosophy creates dualism, whether that's true and false, right or wrong. And thus it excludes certain perspectives from consideration. Now, on the other hand, Postmodernism values and promotes pluralism and diversity. You know, it's not just black and white. It's not East and West. It's male and female. It's all sorts of shades of gray in between those. Mm -hmm. So there's shades of gray between true and false, between right and wrong, between male and female. And isn't that hitting the 
the uh, headlines today in a big way. What are they saying? You know, now there's 63 different genders. Mm -hmm. So the next thing that the postmodernists look at is uh, literary or historical texts. And he says that there is no inherent authority or objectivity in revealing the author's intent. Mm -hmm. So we can't really know what happened. The texts reflect the peculiarities of the writer's particular bias, culture, and era. Mm -hmm. So they're saying it doesn't have any long-lasting meaning past the time when it was written. Right. So if you've got a scriptural text that dates back to the first century, it may have been valid then, but we're past that now. Right. So we have more history. We have more uh, lenses through which we can look at reality. And therefore, what was valid then may have nothing to do what's valid now. And that would really do away with any kind of universal, long-lasting truth, as we believe the scripture does hold for us if we're interpreting it correctly. But the third one that the postmodernists look at is the linguistic turn. And he would argue that the language that we use shapes our thinking and that there can be no thought without language. So language literally creates the truth. Truth isn't just truth. Truth isn't transcendent. Truth doesn't exist outside of language or in some cases outside of literature. Which is why, I might add, we're seeing so much today in the political realm, particularly in America, people are really all about their narrative because they think if we can get ahead of the message, if we can control the message, then we're creating a truth by our narrative, whether or not it's based in fact or whether it's based in truth or not. That doesn't matter to them anymore. As long as we can get the right narrative out there, we can control the message and we can control the outcome. Right, and that's where they have set aside the meta-narratives, the huge narratives that create real truth and real dignity and real reason, all of those things we talked about earlier. Yep. Uh, because this narrative is the one that's important to me right now. I don't care if it's true because my truth supersedes your truth and I want a certain outcome. And that's why the political scene is such a mess. It is indeed. Well, and that takes us right to our fourth characteristic, which is truth as perspectival. Truth is a matter of perspective or context rather than being something universal or something transcendent. We do not have access to reality, to the way things are, but only to what they appear to us. And since we cannot remove ourselves from the context to have a God's eye view of things, mm -hmm. we must acknowledge that our thinking is shaped by forces beyond our control, which is almost contradictory to their premise. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so once again, we have a logical absurdity within the basic structure of the characteristics of the postmodernist, and they don't care. Yeah, because you, you read the very last part of that statement, and you think, well, if our knowledge must come from someplace outside ourselves by forces beyond our control, then we as Christians would say, we agree with that, because it is being shaped by a force outside our control, because we can have a God's eye view, because he revealed himself to us through creation itself, through the inspired word of God and through Jesus Christ. So it's almost like they're making our case for us. Exactly. And if we look at that in, in the context of how the 
the postmodernist looks at the world, at reality, at culture, at society, we can only conclude that their understanding of all of those different factors comes straight from the devil. They're straight from the pit of hell because they're not based on the validity of God. And you can just see if you look at the characteristics of the demonic spirits in the New Testament, particularly, mm -hmm. a lot of what they say is mirrored in the beliefs of the postmodernist. If you could read that book, The Screwtape Letters from C.S. Lewis, you could probably write in the margins every one of these kinds of invalid worldviews next to different methods that Satan, essentially, was using to try to trip people up and to destroy their sense of calling, to destroy truth, to destroy their trust in an almighty God who loves them enough to be able to take their place on a cross. All that stuff comes right out of hell itself. Yeah, and what we see is all of these different invalid worldviews, the ones we looked at a couple of weeks ago, the ones we looked at today, just because they are invalid, it doesn't mean that people don't hold them and hold them strongly. Yeah. You know, people believe this stuff to the depths of their soul, and they're wrong. Yeah. Unfortunately, what it means is, from a spiritual standpoint, that they have chosen by believing this and not repenting to look at the, the true truth, the transcendent truth, mm -hmm. is that they're headed to the pit of hell because of the belief system that they have and their lack of acknowledgement of what the true God has done for them. Right. And that sounds like a very fundamentalist evangelical statement to say that people are destined for hell if they don't turn from those worldviews. And yet, it's accurate. It is accurate. We are headed for eternal torment if we don't recognize that all these things that God has been putting right in our face, I mean, he literally has made it so easy for us to see the evidence. I mean, God has been going out of his way to make himself known to us for a long time. And yet all these different worldviews are creeping in. And even though they're so illogical and they make no sense, people are grasping at those things for their worldview because they just want to do what they want to do. They want to be their own little gods, small g, instead of recognizing that there is a capital G God, a creator who knows what's best for us and who offers us a way out of our lostness. And he becomes the map to go back to my early analogy so that we can just follow Jesus Christ. He is the way. We don't have to know the map. We can follow him and he will lead us to our ultimate destination. And he makes the trip a whole lot more fun along the way too. And the thing that comes to mind for me is because we know the source of all of these invalid worldviews, we, it goes right back to our struggle is not against flesh and blood, right. but against right. all of these powers and principalities from the dark world. And it's no wonder that people who, as you said, want to do what they want to do, grasp onto these things, even though they are demonically inspired yeah. and are put in place by the evil one to do exactly what they're doing, which is to mislead people, to deceive them into believing falsehoods that will assure their eternal destruction. Exactly. And that's why it's important for real shepherds, people who are trying to get those sheep into the sheepfold and to keep them from wandering away into these crazy worldviews, 
we need to be talking about them. We need to put them out there. And not too many people are interested in hearing the truth about those things. They want to be able to grasp. Sometimes they'll grasp a little here, a little there. It's a smorgasbord of beliefs. And it's just none of it makes a whole lot of sense. But that doesn't matter because they say, well, I'm a spiritual person. I'm not really a believer in Christ. But I do consider myself spiritual because they're grabbing hold of little bits and pieces of all these different worldviews. And so many of the lies have an element of truth to it. So they feel like they are moving towards God when they're really not, because this little bit of truth is enough to keep me on track Mm -hmm. towards what I'm feeling is my ultimate destiny as I find my way through the cosmos. And yet the full truth is so simple. Mm -hmm. And we've, we've hammered it a number of times. We have to realize that People who hold invalid world truths are still loved by God, are still being sought by him. He still wants them to come into the family. He still wants to save their soul if they would just listen to not what was developed by man, but was given in the scriptures in the pre-pre-modernism back starting in Genesis, however many years ago that was. And that's the foundation on which we need to start building our worldview of truth that includes God, that includes Christ, that includes his sacrifice on the cross, it includes his shed blood for the cleansing of sin. Yeah, that's the basis of the real truth that comes into us, and the Holy Spirit reveals it, and it's a powerful, powerful moment when we realize that, and we can grasp it and just allow that truth to come into our lives through the Holy Spirit, who is the source of that truth. Uh, Our family just watched a really good documentary called The Jesus Music, It's available on Amazon Prime and Hulu and several other sources. And it's a chronicle of what happened with the music that started in Costa Mesa, California, with Chuck Smith and the Maranatha movement and other hippies that were getting saved. And there was this new genre of music that was considered Christian music that just started to develop, not because music was a part of that, but because somebody had to express what was going on based on this movement of God within them. And in every generation, they have to express this wonderful change, this transformation that happens to them. And with them, it comes out in music because that's such an expression of soul felt truth. And then we get to see that in each new generation, that there's a whole new language of worship based on new musical styles, not because music is taking us there, but because God is taking us there and people are just expressing in what is current musically. It's interesting to see the parallel. Because at that same time frame, starting in the late 60s, -hmm. we had the postmodernists being more accepted, uh, more universally accepted in society. And yet God was pulling alongside a pretty good sized revival. That was the time that I was saved in 73. And the, the music was coming out and there was more ways to express Christianity. And so the parallel tracks are moving alongside. God was never uh, sitting on the sidelines just watching what was happening because his sole purpose at that point was to save the souls of his children, which he wants more than anything. And he was watching his children being pulled further and further away from him by this new thought process or this new structure of thought. And he was right there saying, no, we're going to keep that in check because there are more who need to be saved. And it was a beautiful thing to see that because it took me right back in my mind to that era. And you could clearly see that. It was a huge movement. Oh, yeah. I remember remember driving to San Antonio because we were going to go to the World's Fair. 
And we kept passing all these VW buses that had flowers on the side and stuff, but then they were saved hippies. So they were some of these new Jesus followers and they would have these one way signs and they would lean out their window and hold their finger up, which means there's one way and it's in Jesus Christ. He is the way. So there was part of that huge hippie movement that became the Jesus people and the Jesus movement. And it was definitely happening parallel with, as you say, that crazy world system that was trying to take people away from God. So when we look at this in light of practicality, when we look at it in light of application, mm -hmm. we have to see that it's one thing to know about all of these worldviews, but then what do we do with them? So we have to be aware of why people think the way they do, why they believe what they believe. And it's all these little things. And, and often, as you said, it's a mishmash, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. And yet we know that they're invalid, but how do we let them know that? That's where the gospel comes in. And that's where I continue to see that the simplest presentation of the simple truths of the gospel seem to have the greatest effect. Because when we hear the truth that God loves us enough to actually take our place on a cross, there's something that the Holy Spirit does that just reaches in and grabs us by the soul, <laughs> grabs us by the heart. And we recognize he is a God who loves us, and he wants us to be his beloved children, and he makes a way for us to be able to do that. And as apologists, we now have more tools in our toolbox to be able to say, yeah, that sounds very much like mythology or deconstructionism or uh, epistemological relativism. But if you throw those terms out to somebody, they're not going to know what you're talking about. They've just bought into to some portion of that that helps them feel good about their, their uh, walk through life. At that point, you can then say, have you thought about why this may or may not be transcendently true? And then you can provide an answer that comes from the scriptures that you know is transcendently true because it comes from a transcendent God, right. an immutable God who's not changing, whose truth is not changing, whose purpose is not changing, whose story is not changing. And you can bring back around in the discussion, as we've talked about or shown in a number of different ways, how those spiritual discussions can get you to the point where you can provide an answer that refutes the argument that they may be making, but in a way that is loving and gentle and nurturing. And part of that relationship that you're developing with those people within your sphere of influence that we've talked about a number of times. And that's where real change can happen. Yeah. You know, it's, it's not like you're going to bonk them on the head with a cast iron skillet and, and get through to them. But the other side of that is if we are approaching or in the end times, we don't have a lot of time to make that happen. And we need to develop that sense of urgency. I loved seeing that urgency displayed in that documentary I mentioned, The Jesus Music. And we saw people like Greg Laurie out on the West Coast, who's still really preaching today, good, simple, evangelical truths about the Jesus who loves us enough to die in our place. Uh, people like Chuck Smith and others who said, yeah, we're going to open our churches up and let people come in barefoot because these are the hippies. We need them to hear the truth and to use their style of music, even though they got blasted by other pastors who thought, oh, well, they can't do that. They have to dress appropriately and all that nonsense. And Billy Graham, who stood up for a new way of describing this wonderful love of God in a, a musical style, he was a champion for new music. And he got blasted by people too. 
He was championing people like DC Talk and others, allowing them to come and perform because they were helping draw a crowd and express through their music the same gospel that he was preaching. His messages were always so central to the gospel and so simple. And that's what we want to present to you too, because the Holy Spirit uses a simple, simply expressed gospel. God loves you enough to die in your place on a cross because he wants you to be his child. And you too can have that grace freely expressed through his Holy Spirit by just accepting it through faith. That's the gospel. That is the gospel. And you talk about Greg Laurie. He's got some wonderful sermons as he preached through Revelation. Some really good stuff if you're interested in seeing how what's happening today could be the foundation, if not the, the beginning of those last few months or years that we have before Christ comes again. Yeah. Uh, I remember the, the story, something that happened about the time of the, the Jesus movement where a hippie came in in his fringe clothes, dirty bare feet, and he came in and all of the uppity folks of the church who had been there for 40 years were kind of, you know, turning their nose up at him. And he came down, walked right down the main aisle and sat down right between the front two rows. And one of the ushers got up out of his seat and walked over to him and sat down right with him and experienced that same church service with him because he loved that person. It didn't matter what he looked like. It didn't matter if he had shoes on. He was a child of God who's loved by God just as much as everybody else in that church at that, that very moment. I love it. That's the kind of Christ-like love we got to demonstrate to other people, not so we can blast them because of their worldview, not so we can win an argument, because we love them, because God loves them, and we want them to experience his love. That was the source of that great movement back in the 70s. It can be the source of another great movement today if believers will be that loving toward people, even people who are very different than we are. We want to call upon people to be that kind of loving expression of God's love to those people in our world. And I know that you believe that there will be a worldwide revival before the, the second coming. Uh, I certainly believe that. It starts in the heart of, of one believer. Uh, I share that message when I run across believers out in the, the workplace and try to get them fired up a bit. You know, and I, I had a, a divine appointment with a, a lady not too long ago. And when she left, I said, I'm going to pray for you and your mission field. Mm. And she said, I appreciate that. And I think it gave her a sense of urgency. And yeah. I think there could be a sense of urgency in the lives of our, our fellow theologians. And there may be some who need that personal revival in themselves mm -hmm. who need to take that first step. And I bet you can help them do that. I would be happy to try to do in my own feeble way. <laughs> I know that God can do things through our feeble efforts. And this is always a feeble effort when I start praying, going to the Almighty God on behalf of others. And yet, somehow, amazingly, he hears those feeble prayers and he answers them. So I'd be happy to guide us in a couple of prayers. One, for the people who need that urgency and want to have that urgency. And secondly, for those people who want to actually take that step of faith. So let's do that. I'll give you some sample prayers. You could pray something like this. Father, I sense that my life has been sort of just uh, limping along, and I need that sense of urgency to feel the compassion that you have for lost people. I want that same compassion. I want that same love for lost people that would compel me to love them enough to tell them the truth, to display your love to them, and to convey to them how much you love them by sharing the gospel with them. So God, I want you to take away my fear, 
and help me just to do the right thing based on your Holy Spirit's input into my life, because I know that you can motivate me and give me the right words to say at the right time. Just ramp me up into becoming a loving person who is sharing Christ with others. And then for those who might uh, be interested in taking that step of faith right now, I would say you could say something like this, God, I need what these guys are talking about. I want to follow you. I want the worldview that passes all tests. I want to become a Christ follower because he is the way. I want him to be my map because some of these other things have left me feeling hollow and lost and clamoring for a sense of purpose and a sense of identity. And I, I can't find my identity. I don't even know who I am anymore. And I need to be found in Christ so that my identity is in him. And I want to care more about what he thinks of me than all these crazy people in the world today. I want to know that God loves me enough. I want to relax into his grace. I want to place my faith in him to lean the full weight of my trust on God so that I can sense his love. He wants to include me in his family of faith, and I want to be his beloved child. And so I trust him. I trust you today, Father. I place my, my trust, my faith in you, not because I am capable of doing anything to earn your grace in my life, but simply because I know that you've done everything necessary for my salvation because of what Jesus did for me. And I trust that. I trust you. Guide my life and show me the way from this day forward. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. It's a powerful gospel, and it's still powerful today, just like it was back in the 50s and 60s and 70s, as we were talking about. As theologians, we can study our entire lives and barely scratch the surface of all that there is. I think that's simply because we serve an infinite God, and our finite little brains can only do so much. Yeah. And the good news is, that for those of us who have appropriated Christ's blood to cleanse us of our sins, we get eternity to get to figure it all out. Don't we ever. That's such a beautiful hope. And it's not just a hope like wishful thinking hope. It's a hope based on the reality of what we see, all the evidence that we have available to us. And so it's a firm, steadfast hope. Hey, thanks for another good, deep, but good conversation about these worldviews. I really do trust and hope and pray that our fellow theologians will start to feel like they can build their lives on a firm foundation of the Christian worldview, which passes all the tests that we could throw at it. And we've got more resources available on our website. That is mondayafternoontheologians.podia.com. Feel free and look at some of those resources. I hope they will help you in your walk. And I do hope that you will join us again next time for another episode of Monday, Monday Afternoon, Afternoon Theologians. 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 Theologians.